0: Good evening everybody, welcome to the LSC, and welcome to this philosophy at LSE lecture on safeguards of a disunified mind. Today's lecture is part of the philosophy at LSC le- uh, lecture series uh, which is jointly organised by the Forum for European Philosophy, the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Methods so that, and the Centre for Philosophy of, uh, for Natural and Social Sciences. I'm Juliana Carinale, and I'm the Associate Director of the Forum for European Philosophy. I'm delighted to introduce today, tonight's speaker, Professor Blodek-Ravinovits, Rabinovic, is Professor of Practical Philosophy at Lund University and LSE Centennial Professor in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. Uh, Professor Rabinovic has published extensively in a broad range of topics, including value theory, decision theory, moral philosophy, and philosophy of logic. Now, the format for tonight's uh, lecture would be as follow. Professor Rabinovitz will speak for about 50 to 60 minutes, and then we will open, the, uh, we will open it to questions, the uh, floor to questions from the audience. So that leaves us 30 to 40 minutes for questions. So I hand over to the speaker now, but please join me in welcoming Professor Brodick Rabinovitz.
1: Thank you, Juliana, and um, welcome, everybody. Perhaps I should apologize first that this talk the is probably going to be more prosaic than the title, so, so I, I hope you won't be disappointed. Uh, so what's my subject? Uh, I will focus on a certain kind of arguments that have been, have been presented for different constraints of rationality. So what I mean by constraints of rationality are different constraints, different requirements that can be put on uh, on a person's beliefs and desires, on, on beliefs and preferences. And uh, the kind of arguments uh, for those requirements, constraints that I'm interested in are so-called pragmatic arguments. So what's so special for pragmatic arguments? Well, arguments of this kind typically appeal to the costs or violations of the constraints in question. So if you are going to violate this requirement, then it will cost you in one way or another. And so that is considered to be the kind of argument for, for the requirement in question. Okay, let's see. Yeah. So here is the form, uh, typical form of a pragmatic argument. So it's shown that a violator uh, a violator of this uh, some given requirement can be ma- made to act to a guaranteed disadvantage, which means whatever is going to happen this person is going to lose in the, in the process. Uh, it will be a guaranteed loss. And dramatically put, if we think of a clever opponent who doesn't know more than the person in question, that clever opponent can exploit the person, can set up a system of... Uh, uh, Offers such that uh, that person would accept those offers, but if, if she accepts them, then she will lose whatever, whatever happens. Uh, the idea of this kind of argument goes back to Frank Ramsey. So here is a quote from Truth and Probability from 26. If anyone's mental condition violated these laws, then he has in mind probability laws, So that's one kind of constraint of rationality, probability loss. He could have a book made against him by a cunning vector, and he would then stand to lose in any event. So he would lose. It would be a a sure loss. Now, in these arguments, it's normally assumed that we are talking a person who is self-interested, right? So uh, it's important that that person is not... uh, cost, uh, uh, shore loss, but this is not really a, a central, uh, an essential feature of the argument. So we can think of, an, uh, of a person who, who is not at all self so interested, but uh, she has certain goals, right? and uh, uh, if she violates uh, a certain rationality constraints, then one can exploit that person in this sense that whatever uh, happens, those goals will be worse re- realized than otherwise. So she will lose in terms of, of maybe the values, the things that she sets value on. right? But in what follows, I will just for, for simplicity assume Self-interest and this, but that's, that's just not an, a, sort of an essential assumption. Now, uh, well, uh, just to give some examples of pragmatic arguments, I, I will describe those examples in more details later. But uh, the the arguments can be distinguished by different kinds of exploitation setups, right? So. In some arguments, what one uses are so-called synchronic Dutch books. Right. So a Dutch book is a system of bets such that if you accept all the bets in the book, right, in the system, then you are going to lose whatever, whatever happens. I guess the term comes from from the old times when the Brits were fighting the Dutch, right? <laughs> so everything bad was connected to the Dutch, right? Yes, the Dutch carat, Dutch, Dutch book, right? Yes, the... uh, and synchronic Dutch books, well, those are the c- cases when those different beds are offered at the same time, right? Synchronically. Then th- this kind of... Uh, uh, setups are used against people who violate standard probability laws, right? Then we have diachronic Dutch books, so it's again this system of uh, bets, right, that is uh, that you, you are going to, if you accept them all, you are going to lose whatever happens, but those bets are offered at different times, right? So it's diachronically. And uh, those are... Uh, Those setups are used to argue for more sort of complicated principles like principle of reflection and conditionalization, so kind of principles that tell you how to choose, change your probabilities. And then we have money pumps, right? And I will uh, explain what a money pump is uh, in a moment. And they are used to. uh, established the requirement that preference should be acyclical, right? So, what is this requirement? Well, the requirement is that the decision-maker's preferences should not form a cycle. An example of a cyclical preferences, preference would be the following one. So, suppose we, there are three, uh, three possible outcomes, X, Y, and Z, and I prefer, this stands for preference, so I prefer Y to X, Z to Y, but then X to Z, right? So, it's a, I'm going in a, in a circle, in a cycle, right? Uh, so, for example, I prefer an apple to a banana, I prefer... Uh, Uh, a mango to an apple, right, but then I prefer banana to a mango, right, then then I have this kind of cyclic preference, right, and uh, the requirement is not to have, well, to have acyclic preferences, right, and if you have such preferences, then you can be exposed to a money problem. Well, now, before I present some of those uh, arguments in more detail, let me just point uh, to something that seems to be the common feature of of the arguments. So, assume that we have a person who is uh, logically competent, mathematically competent, there's no problems with his logical and mathematical abilities. And suppose that she prefers to be better off rather than worse off, right? Okay. Now, then if she violates a given constraint, a given requirement of rationality, she can be exploited only if she addresses different choice problems, different offers uh, separately rather than jointly. That is only if she is disunified in her decision making. So disunification is here in the object of decision making. That I sort of, when I have a number of offers on a table, then I make a decision on each of those problems whether to accept it or not independently, kind of, rather than to make a wholesale decision on the whole package of offers if I do this kind of do it independently, then, then I am disunified. So what seems what is this common feature is that this kind of disunification seems to be the necessary uh, prerequisite for being for exploitation in those different exploitation setups. Right? So in the absence of disunification the, the, those disunification Exploitation setups don't work. That's, that's kind of the idea, which I will try to, to sort of show on examples. So let's consider the first the first example. Suppose we have a person who violates some probability laws. But before we uh, go into that example, I need some preliminaries. Right? So I am assuming. Uh, Two things. So, one thing is that I'm interested in something called subjective probabilities, which is nothing else than a person's degrees of belief, right? So, suppose that we have a certain proposition, certain hypothesis, and then the question is, what is my degree of belief in that hypothesis? And this is my subjective probability for for that hypothesis, for that proposition. So, this is one way of thinking of probabilities. Not the only way, but here by probabilities I mean subjective probabilities, degrees of belief. And what is now assumed is something called the betting interpretation of subjective probabilities. And I'll try to explain what it is. So the basic idea is that my degrees of belief, my subjective probabilities, are my guides to action. So how, how am I am I going to act depending depends on what I believe and to what to what degree, right? So actions now whose outcomes depend on tr- the truth of uncertain propositions, uncertain propositions uh, uh, may be seen as bets on these propositions. So suppose I decide to go to the beach. Well, it's then I am betting on a good, on good got good weather, right? So it's, this action can be seen as a bet on a, on a certain proposition, right? And how much I am willing to bet depends on my subjective probabilities, depends on how, how what is my degree of belief that, that the weather will be good. Uh, so subjective probabilities, our guides to action, can be measured by our betting disposition, by our dispositions to, to make bets. That's the, the basic idea of the betting interpretation. Now, uh, for a long time I saw that this uh, was a rather new idea, kind of going back to Ramsey and Definetti, Finetti, so the beginning of the, of the 20th century, but not, uh, not uh, earlier in, in the history of uh, Um, of uh, probability but uh, then uh, I discovered uh, that actually there is a longer history to to this uh, to this uh, um, uh, to this interpretation and uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, the person who uh, was the first as far as I know who presented that interpretation was Kant in in Critique of Pure Reason. But he did it towards the end of the critique, so not many people read that part. <laughs> no, that's, uh, so that's not a well-known fact. But here is a, a quote from, from, from Kant, from, from the, the last part, the methodology of pure reason. So he, he writes as follows. The usual, usual touchstone whether that which someone asserts is merely his persuasion or at least his subjective conviction that is his firm belief is betting. It often happens that someone propounds his views with such positive and uncompromising assurance that he seems to have entirely set aside all sorts of possible error. A bet disconcerts him. Sometimes it turns out that he has a conviction which can be estimated at the value of one ducat. So he is prepared to <laughs> bet one ducat on that conviction, but not of ten. Ten is too much. Right? For he is very willing to venture one ducat, but when it's a question of ten, he becomes aware, as he has not previously been, that it may very well be that he's in error. If in a given case we represent ourselves as taking the happiness of our whole life, so that's the maximal price, the triumphant tone of our judgments is greatly abated. We become extremely diffident and discover for the first time that our belief does not reach so far. Thus, pragmatic belief always exists in some specific degree which, according to difference in the interest at stake, may be large or may be small. And uh, something that is rather funny, that Kant himself was prepared to stake quite a lot on the existence of... uh, Intelligent, uh, of life, intelligent life on other planets in our solar system. So I should be ready to stake all my possessions on the contention were it possible by means of any experience to settle the question that at least one of the planets which we see is inhabited. Hence I say, well, maybe not by intelligent beings, but by some life. Hence I say that it's not merely opinion but a strong belief on the correctness of which I should be prepared to run great risks that other worlds are inhabited. Right? Okay. So that was Kant. But now to make this sort of uh, betting interpretation sort of a little bit more precise, let's introduce a definition first. So I will say that a bet is fair. If the agent is willing to take each of its sides, so he's just as willing to buy the bet or to sell the bet, so he can take each side of the bet. Now, take a proposition A, some hypothesis A. So the betting rate, the, the person's betting rate for a proposition A is simply the ratio between the price and the stake in a fair bet on A. So when we identify what is a fair bet for that person on A, and then look at the price of that bet, how much it costs to buy it, and the stake, how much you will win if you win the bet. So the the proportion between the price and the stake is the betting rate for, for this proposition. Now, there's something that is assumed here, namely that this price-stake ratio is constant for all fairbats on A. That means if I increase the stake, what is to be won, then the price is increased proportionately. This is, doesn't quite work so well though, if the stakes are very high, then there is this problem of decreasing marginal utility of money. But for relatively small prices and stakes, one can assume that this constancy holds, right? Now, on the betting interpretation, probability of A equals the agent's betting rate for for that proposition, right? So, my probability for A equals my betting rate. So this is what this formula says. The probability of A is the betting rate of A. So it's in this sense there is this connection between my degree of belief and my willingness to accept to accept bets, right? Now consider an example of a person who violates one of the axioms, probability axioms. So suppose we take the addition axiom for probability. So according to that axiom, if we have two incompatible propositions, right, logically incompatible propositions, then the probability that one of them is true is the sum of the probabilities that one is true plus the probability that the other is true. So the sum, the probability of the disjunction of that proposition, A or B, is the sum of the probabilities for A and for B. Now suppose that someone violates this uh, 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 principle. So suppose that that person' probability for A is one-half, his probability for B is one-half, but his probability for this junction, A or B, is not one, as it should be according to the axiom one half plus one half but it's only three fourths right? so that's a relation of the additional axiom then we can expose that person to a Dutch book and how do we do it? well if we first sell to the agent a bet on A and also another bet on B and each of those bets has the stake four pounds so this is what can be won on the bet, right? And the price, two pounds. So the, the proportion between the price and the stake is two divided by four, one half. So it corresponds to the probability that this person has for A and for B, right? So those are fair bets, right? One half. But we then buy from that person a bet on the disjunction A or B, and now the stake is the same here, right? So if that disjunction will will turn out to be true, the person will have to pay out for for pounds. But the price for buy, for for sort of for buying that bet, right? Uh, uh, well, is three, right? Okay. So it's again, it's the proportion is 3 divided by 4, so it corresponds to the probability that person has to, to um, for, that, for that disjunction, A or B. Now, now consider what happens. Suppose that A is going to turn out to be true. Well, then that person will collect the stake 4 on A, but not on B, right? Because A and B exclude each other. And uh, but then we'll have to pay the bookie the stake for on the disjunction A or B. So the stake will just change, change hands. But in terms of prices, he bought two bets, each of them costing two. So it's uh, It's four pounds altogether, and he got only three from the bookie. So the bookie earns one pound, one pound that way. The same thing happens if B is the case, exactly the same. Suppose that neither A nor B is the case. Well, in this case, none of the bet is going to be won here, but still the, the agent bought two bets for altogether four pounds, two plus two, and sold one bet for three pounds. So again, the bookie gains one pound. So whatever happens, the bookie has won. Uh, the, the, the agent has lost one, one pound, whatever happens, right? So that, that's a that rule. Now here is a natural objection, right? And it goes back to the 80s already. Suppose that we have a person who is logically and mathematically competent and she prefers to be better off rather than worse off, well, surely she's not going to accept all those rivers because if she makes a decision of the whole, on the whole pack, package rather than separately on each component, because then she will realize that whatever happens, she's going to just to lose one pound, right? So if she makes a decision the on the whole package, she will never accept the package, right? So if if one approaches this problem in a unified way, right, there's no, no room for exploitation. Right? Now one could say, but wait a moment, even if it's true that the unified agent won't be exploited, but doesn't the very possibility of a Dutch book show that there is something wrong with this agent, with this person in the, in the example? The fact that this, this Dutch book is in some sense possible. Right? So, look, what it seems that she finds each, this person, she finds each bet in the package attractive, but she, at the same time that she assigns negative value to the package as a whole. How is it possible? Doesn't this mean that that person evaluates the, one and the same betting arrangement differently under different logically equivalent descriptions, right? And this idea was put forward by Skerms, that there's something, something problematic with that agent, even though she's not going to be exploited if she's unified. But I, I think that, the, the, that Skerms' suggestion is, uh, uh, isn't convincing because it only shows that the person that we are now considering that that person's evaluations are not additive. So he considers each part of the package attractive but together those parts do not form an attractive, an attractive whole. So the sum the value of the whole is not the sum of the values of the, of the parts right? but why should they be? So this this is not a sort of a, uh, a condition of logic of some sort that valuation should satisfy additivity, right? So uh, and actually there were uh, well there are philosophers who, who questioned this additivity idea. So uh, uh, one of them, perhaps the most famous one, was Timur. Who formulated something called the principle of organic Unities, which was precisely the principle that, in some cases, the value of the whole is not identical to the sum of the values of the parts. Right, and that would be that would be an example, right? Now, consider another example. Consider someone who violates the requirements of acyclicity on preference. So, suppose that the preferences of that person form a cycle. So, she prefers y to z, to x, z to y, but then again x to z, right? In the circle. And now, suppose that she holds x here. That's something that she has, right? And is invited to trade X for Y, and then, if she does it, to trade Y for Z. And if she does it, finally, Z for X, right? And so each time she's offered something she prefers to what she holds at that time. So when she holds X, she's offered Y, which she prefers. She makes an exchange, she has y, and then she's offered z, which she prefers to y. So she exchanges, and so on, and so on, right? But suppose that each trade costs her some small amount of money, let's say 10p, right? Or something like this. But this small amount does not reverse her preference. She still prefers y minus 10p. P to X, and similarly, Z minus 10P to, to Y, and so on. But, so then she pays each time for the exchange, and what happens is that after three trades, is back to where she started, to X, but minus 30P, right? So she has been transformed into a money pump, right? The money was, has been pumped out of her, right? So it's a money pump argument, right? Okay, if you have those cyclical preferences, then you can be turned into a manipulator. Well, again, one could have this objection saying, but wait a moment, if the agent were to make just one decision on her whole course of action, not just on each particular exchange, but on sort of sequences of of." Of those exchanges, but well, surely she would not be pumped. She would never accept to make three trades that would get her back to, to the point of departure uh, minus three, minus uh, 30p. Right? And uh, here, uh, a philosopher that one should be mentioned is Ned McLennan, who was here at LSE for several years. So he had this idea of resolute choice. He argued that. Uh, it's important that people make plans, right, and then follow the plans, right. And the plan is precisely like a sort of decision of the whole course of action, right. And then you make a plan and then you implement, you follow it, right. Then you are resolute, right. So resoluteness is a way to avoid various unpleasant things among different things among other things. Is this. Uh, Resolute agents are not going to do it now. But of course, this kind of resoluteness is a form of unified choice. Right? So you make a decision on the whole package of offers over, well, a whole sequence of offers over time, rather than in a disunified way on each particular trade offer. So, conclusion is that vulnerability to exploitation in the money pump is based on diachronic disunification, on the fact that we make those decisions one by one, rather than whole, wholesale. Now, one might wonder, but wait a moment, is diachronic unification really necessary if the pump is to be avoided? Can't we avoid it in another way by showing foresight, by sort of being aware of what is kept in store, for us, in store for us when we make particular decisions on particular trade offers, right? So this idea that foresight should be enough has been argued by several people, right? And uh, to explain this idea, I should uh, sort of uh, point out to one thing, namely... All those uh, pragmatic arguments, they assume that there is uh, an exploitation going on despite the fact that the exploiter doesn't know more than the person to be exploited. Because otherwise, well, it's no big deal that people who know more, this inside knowledge and so on, well, they can exploit for ignoramuses, right? But supposing that... The knowledge, knowledge is symmetrical on both parts. Then one would expect that there is no room for exploitation. So we need to assume that the bookie doesn't know more, that the exploiter doesn't know more than the person to be exploited. Okay? Or the reverse? Knows oh, uh, as much as the exploiter. No, we don't need to assume that. So that's says, Yes. So that's not true. That's not necessary. The, the only thing is that necessary, as far as I understand, is that the exploiter doesn't know more than the person to be exploited, right?
0: It's just thought the word
1: symmetry is misleading. There. Yeah, so, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah right.
0: Because clearly, if he knows, no. knows the exploiter is book idea, then of course they won't do it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree that in this sense, the formulation symmetry knowledge is, uh, is too much, right? Uh, but it's leading. Okay. So, also, um, those are payoffs at the end of the terminal. Yes. Of trees, right? in, in that case, and given the argument, the preferences are not really defined over X, Y, and Z, but on pairs, X and a certain amount of money. Yes. I mean, the domain of the, to be technical, the domain of the binary exact exactly. is not exactly. what it appears to be though. Yes, so uh, I said that uh, sort of only in passing though, when I said that uh, each trade uh, costs her a small amount which does not reverse her preference. To, to explain that, we should represent uh, the, uh, the preferences on those pairs, right, consisting of, of, uh, of an X plus. Uh, plus uh, some cost to the, yes, I I agree, right, yes, that's true, yes, I agree. Okay, (coughs) so it's sort of, you get this, from the cyclical preference, you get this more complicated preference by sort of assuming that there's no preference reversal. So, well, here I want to show how one can uh, use foresight to avoid being exploited in, in a money pump. So suppose here, uh, I am this agent with those, with those cyclical preferences, well, more than what you have said now, right? Uh, And suppose I hold X, right? And I, I get an offer to exchange for Y. So if I go up, that means that I have accepted the offer. If I go down, I have rejected the offer. So if I go down, I end up with X, right? If I go up, then I hold Y, and now I get the offer for Z, right? If I reject the offer, then I end up with Y, well, minus the small payment, right? If I accept, then I go up, and now I get the offer for x. If I reject it, well, then I end up with z minus 2 epsilon, because I make two trades. But if I accept, then I go back to x minus 3 epsilon. So I have paid three three times. That's the, So given this sort of symmetry of knowledge, right, yes, given that... Uh, even the bookie sort of wants to exploit me in this way, then I need to know that this is what's being kept in store for me. But if I know that, then I can try to solve this problem by something called backward induction. So in backward induction, what I do is I start reasoning backward about the problem. I think, suppose I end up here. What am I going to do at that point? So I have z and I am offered x. Well, surely, since I prefer x to z, so I'm going to accept the offer. I will go up. So this is the move that I will make, which is marked with a bold line, right? Well, so suppose I'm here. Here I hold y, and I'm offered an exchange for z. Well, I can reject, or I can accept, but if I accept, then I know that I will accept again, so I will accept, end up with x. But if I reject, I will end up with y, but I prefer y to, to x. So at this point, I should reject the offer, right? So I, I do not make the second exchange, right? About the first exchange, I do make it, because then I accept, expect that I will reject the second offer, and I end up with y. Right, and y is better than x. So I make the first trade, but that's it. I stop there and I'm not going to be exploited by showing foresight, by reasoning in this backward induction way, right? By reasoning backwards, right? And for a long time, I saw that this shows that you don't need to be unified in order to. Uh, to avoid money pumps, right? But then what happened was that I discovered that actually when things are not that rosy, so foresight is not enough if the exploiter is, as I call it, persistent. So what do I mean by that? Well, a persistent exploiter comes back with the offer the agent has rejected at the previous stage. so if I reject an offer of an exchange, he comes back with the same offer at the next stage. Right? That means that a refusal to exchange to, to accept an exchange does not terminate this, the interaction. It does not get, get me off the of the hook in the, here. As soon as I refuse, that's the end of the whole interaction, right? I'm there, and there are no further offers, right? But suppose that that's not that easy, that the offer will be repeated. Well, in this more complicated setting, with, let's say, three stages, right, that you can come back three times, actually, backward induction prescribes trading at each stage, which means that this agent with foresight is going to be money-pumped, right? Uh, So the money-pump does work despite foresight. I'm not going into details of that, but this is the kind of decision tree that one has for this more complicated money-pump. So if I refuse, then I get the same offer. But if I refuse, then I get the same offer. But if I refuse the third time, well, that's the end of the whole, because the the game has three stages. But then then the backward induction solution actually goes up (laughs) all the way. If someone is interested, we can look at it later. Okay. Now, the third example... Violations of the principle of reflection. Well, here what's being used is a diachronic datalog, so a system of bets, but spread out over, over over time, right? Offered at different points of time. So suppose that p is the agent's probability at a certain point time of time t, and p prime is her later probability at point t prime. Some later point. So the P represents uh, my degrees of belief now, and P prime represents my degrees at some later point of time. So the principle of reflection says that for any proposition A, what is my probability of that proposition A on the conditional assumption that I will later have the probability for A equal to K. So this is a conditional probability. I ask myself, so what is my probability for A? Suppose I'm a detective, right? And then I ask myself, okay, so what's my probability that John is guilty uh, on the assumption that in a week's time I will think that he is guilty? Right, that I will assign high probability to to his guilt, right? And then this principle says, well, then you should assign the same probability now to to his guilt, on that assumption. So if you think that you are going to be on the assumption that you are going to be certain of, of his guilt, then on that assumption you should be certain conditionally on that assumption you should be certain of his guilt. So the, idea, the intuition here is that my current probabilities, uh, conditioned, uh, that a conditional on my future probabilities should reflect those future probabilities. So there's some idea of, of epistemic self-trust. I believe I, I, I'm trusting myself in the future. Though in the future, I will get more information. So those, my future probabilities is something that I should sort of uh, 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 be uh, uh, guided by, right? Now, uh, on the other hand, one could say, "But wait a moment! That's perfectly okay if I am, if I trust myself, right? But suppose I think that I am going to be epistemically, well, I will be corrupted as a, as a cognizer in the future. Well, suppose I, I think that I will be." Uh, senile, (laughs) right? So whatever. Or suppose to consider this example with uh, the detective, suppose I think that I have this tendency to be too enthusiastic uh, uh, about evidence. So on the assumption that in a week's time I will be certain that, that John is guilty... Well, perhaps I'm not that certain that John is guilty because I think that maybe my certainty later will depend on my uh, treating evidence to, to hastily in, uh, in the favor of the hypothesis, right? So some one might think that this principle is not convincing, but as a matter of fact, what one can show is that uh, violator of this principle of reflection is is vulnerable to a diachronic Dutch book. And this Dutch book consists in some of uh, the bets offered now, other bets offered later. Okay, so I, I don't go through the detail, but So as before, for exploitation, we need to assume diachronic disunification. So we need to assume that uh, I don't make a decision about the whole sequence of of bets, but only about each bet that is being offered at the time when it's being offered. And as before, even diachronic disunification, foresight is not enough to get the agent off the hook, right? So scams observe that even if, with foresight, the Dutch book does work if the exploiter is persistent, but in, in a different sense from the one that I described in the case of, of Money Pump, right? Yes?
0: Well, why, in both this case and the early case, is the argument that if the only change is the persistence 11 to 3 times of the exploiter being the exploiter comes back to you 2 more times or and and more times why is the implicit argument here that at some point in that persistent half you will change your bet that if your first bet is no I'm going to go for it Mm -hmm. That if the exploiter is persistent the implicit assumption is that within the next 2 tries you get to change your bet that's a very heroic kind of intuitive assumption?
1: No, the assumption is simply well in this case the assumption is that uh, persistence of the exploiter consists in the fact that he will offer you later bets whatever you have done currently whether you have accepted the the present bets or rejected those bets. Right, right? If, so you, it's you, you,
0: if you reject you stay at it. X. Yes. Then you stay at X, stay at X. Right. I don't understand why, if you had in persistence, you would definitely go to the other side. I mean, it makes no sense. You know what I'm saying? Is you argued earlier that if, if, if it was persistent, yes. that you will. Take it back?
1: But it's not my persistence. It's the persistence of the exploiter, right? One thing is that if I am sort of a unified agent, and in the sense that I make a plan and then follow the plan persistently, right? then I avoid being exploited. Right? But th- now what I'm interested is, suppose that I am a dis- disunified agent. Right? So I make decisions on each particular offer here. But I do I make them with foresight. So I realize that some other offers will be in the, uh, are kept in store for me later. Now, in this particular case, if I also know that those future offers will be offered to me whatever I do now, then, even though now I predict that I actually don't want to get those offers from my present perspective, right, yes, well, this depends on the structure of the reflection process, but but since I, I, I can do nothing about that, right, so the the offers will be given to me, and this is just a constant horizon of my decision, right? So now I do the best I can in terms of my current offer, right? That's the, that the structure of why I'm still going to be exploited, in, uh, as given that I'm disunified but show foresight, right?
0: No, it means you... Sorry. Let's
1: leave the question. Let's let's leave that question because. But if you have just short clarifying questions, then this. Okay. Let's see. Well, Isaac Levi. Well, he thinks that the diachronic exploitation <laughs> setups, uh, unlike the synchronic ones, are not suitable for legitimate. Uh, pragmatic arguments. Uh, and the reason is that in a correct pragmatic argument, the exploited agent has at her disposal an option whose outcome dominates, is better, that means it's better than uh, the other option, however things develop, the exploitation outcome. So in a correct pragmatic argument, there is some option that is better for me whatever, however things develop than the, the, the exploitation outcome, the presence of a dominating option. And this is the case in the synch- in synchronic books, because their refusal to take any bets at all, and thus to avoid any losses, is an option that is available to the agent if the bets are offered at the same time, right? So, therefore, if she never gets exploited, she must be irrational. But in diachronic setups, there is no viable, feasible option that dominates, the, that is better than the exploitation outcome, whatever happens. So, examples, in money pump, refusing from the outset all the future trades is not a feasible option. In the absence of resoluteness, if I am sort of, if I can only make decisions on a, on each particular decision, then refusing all the outcomes from from the from the outset is not one of the available options. And similarly, in the case of violation of reflection. That, 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 okay. Now I think that this critique is not uh, is not convincing. So we could we could change the examples. So suppose we consider cases in which a wholesale choice is actually viable to the, to the agent in a diachronic setup. So he can make this choice, he's able to make a unified choice, but as a matter of fact, he decides in a disunified way, despite these possibilities. So, this puts the synchronic and diachronic arguments on the same footing. In both cases, the exploitation takes place only because the agent makes decision on each component in the package rather than on the package as a whole. And in both cases, making a joint decision is a feasible option. Well, time flies, I think. Uh, and, uh, Oh, do I, should I finish now? So let me just go to the to the end of the of the whole thing. So here is my suggestion. The real purpose of of pragmatic arguments is to identify constraints that the disunified decision maker needs to satisfy in order to avoid being vulnerable to exploitation. So those are the constraints that I have to satisfy if I want to make uh, decisions in a disunified manner and avoid being exploited. So in this sense, the purpose of those arguments is to identify something that could be called safeguards of a disunified mind, those constraints rationality as such, say that. So this means that such arguments do not establish the inherent rationality of the constraints. And indeed, some of the constraints that they they justify might might not be reasonable. That was my example with, with the principle of reflection. In some cases, satisfying that principle does not seem to be reasonable, but still there is there is a pragmatic argument if if you violate the principle. So it's not the pragmatic, uh, the inherent rationality of the constraint that is being uh, uh, defended. Instead, pragmatic arguments result in a kind of conditional advice. If you are going to pursue disunified decision policies, then you'd better obey things like probability axioms, you'd better avoid cycles in your preferences, you'd better satisfy reflection, and so on. You'd better satisfy those constraints, right? In requirements. Now, this unified decision-making seems to be of great practical value. And this applies in particular to to decisions over time. Why? Because diachronic unification is often difficult. It requires foreknowledge. knowledge, it requires knowledge about what kinds of situations I'm going to face in the future, and it also requires resoluteness, right? Decision, I will act like this and follow this plan, or some costly pre-commitments to, occur to a certain... To a certain course of action. And sometimes diachronic disunification might simply be impossible. Unification might simply be simply impossible. So uh, it's important to be able to be disunified on the diachronically. On the other hand, synchronic unification is very easy. If I get several offers at the same time, simultaneously on the table, well, it's no problem considering those offers together as as one package, right? But this means that pragmatic arguments that are diachronic are much more compelling than synchronic pragmatic arguments. Because those are the diachronic pragmatic arguments uh, uh, show that you can only afford diachronic disunification if you satisfy those those various constraints that those arguments identify. And this is something that is contrary to the received view, because normally one has showed that synchronic arguments, well, they were perfectly okay, but diachronic were, were rather suspect. But if I'm right, well, the situation is precisely the opposite one. Those are you should look at the at what happens over time rather than what happens at, at one and the same time. But thank you.